Hello and welcome to the Reservoir Red Dogs podcast. I'm Matt Ford and you're about to hear the mouth of Paul McGregor. <laughs> the mouth, the mouth, the tongue, the teeth. It all, it all comes together as one to form these lovely tones, Matthew. These I did mean tones. to say voice. I, 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 I realised people will think yes. I started peddling a particularly pretentious form of comedy. <laughs> oh, this is the sound of his mouth. Ugh. <laughs> Oh. I meant to say voice. I said mouth by mistake. I can only apologise. Well, like I say, it's all part of the same. It's all part of the same mechanism, isn't it? Well, we are on a run of form at the moment. Uh, it almost feels like we are a team. <laughs> I wonder if we'll ever play five aside. Do you think we might do that? I'm for playing charity? tonight for the first what? time. Oh, yeah. Where? It'll be eight aside uh, down at Gresham, <gasps> opposite the training ground. Any other ex pros? No. No, there aren't. And what kit do you wear? Is it like a forest kit? Do you really want me to say? Yeah. It's not Derby, uh, is it? No, it's Liverpool. Oh, that's okay. All right. People all right. know you're a Liverpool lad. Yeah, all right. Okay. That's so, okay. And well, what my, mate, my mate does a lot of work for Liverpool, so he always gets me a, a, a free shirt every year. Great. So I wear it for, I wear it for 40. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Although he's put Fabinho on the back. Now, I'm not a Fabinho type player, am I? Who would you like to be? Salah? Mane. Mane. He's unreal, isn't he? Well, they're both very talented men. I'd, I'd happily <laughs> have either of their skills. <laughs> um, but that's great that you're playing football again. Oh, I can't, wait. I can't wait. I mean, I'm going to come off with extremely sore Achilles and back, etc. But I, I just, once I get on there, I can't, sl- I can't, I can't ease in. I can't slow down if i see a run i've got to do it if i see i've got to get past i've got to do it if there's a tackle i've got to do it so my brain can't my old man brain's not kicked in yet i'm still you can still hear there. cluffy in there get in there can, that's I what i pay you it. for yeah oh it's crap <laughs> <laughs> blondie blondie so well, i yeah, do I'm dream to it. i do dream that one day we'll do a reservoir red dogs five aside and i'll get to play with previous guests We'll say it's for we'll do it for charity, obviously, but it'll be yeah. partly my way of living a fantasy of playing alongside you. Maybe Norm's in goal, Robbo. Oh, I imagine. Come on, mate. <laughs> and maybe today's guest's up front. Now we he is a very requested guest. People always say you've got to get Jason Lee on, and that applies to fans, you listeners of the show, and former teammates of his, other guests. And they were absolutely right because this is a brilliant chat. Not just about Forest, and every guest obviously brings their own thing to this. Some of them bring basically a collection of outrageous drinking stories that have to be heavily edited before <laughs> they are played into your delicate ears, dear listener. Others have a kind of almost strategic view of football, and I think it really reflects the fact that Jason is still working in football and still at the PFA. He's still thinking about the issues around football. So this is a really... At times, you're like... this. This should be on Radio 4. This is such a thoughtful analysis of football, what it's like to play it, the pressure on players, the way you deal with that stuff. And that's what's great about the show is you get all these different people bringing all their different personalities, their different stories from their time at Forest, but also their view of the game and and the, the way the game fits into society without sounding too grand about it. And it also helps. Um, I mean, as far as footballers go, we've been very lucky... We had JJ on last week, who was a phenomenal talker. Man. And I think Jay, Jay's, Jay's the same. So extremely eloquent, talks about the game um, beautifully, um, with a real knowledge. And yeah, just you can listen to him all day, couldn't you? Yeah, and him, you're right to put those two alongside. They both think about wider society and not just about things like mental health, which are really important, but just why do societal issues and where does football fit into that? And what can football do? And how can it be better? Yeah. So this is great because it's really wide ranging and he's a great talker. And we talk about everything you would expect us to talk about. We begin by talking about not the hair on the top of the head, but the hair on the well, face. Bottom of the head. Bottom of the head. <laughs> the mouth, if you will. <laughs> Delighted to be joined by Jason Lee. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good afternoon, man. How are you, Jay? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's good to have you on. Um, 
your appearance has changed. Paul was just saying this before we came on. Um, you used to have a lot beard. of hair on the top and a bit below, and now there's nothing uh, on top and it's all below. Here we, here we go, here we go. <laughs> Overcompensating, overcompensating. <laughs> that, that's what it is. You know, you know, it is, you, you, if I could still grow the hair, I would, but I had to give up a few years back. <laughs> it really suits you, though. Is that a beard that's come on during lockdown? Uh, I've always had some facial hair. You know, you mess around with it a little bit, then yeah. But um, try and get creative. But yeah, it's definitely a lockdown beard, and the weather's changed. So you know, um, I might have to take it down a bit. It's getting a bit warmer. Yeah. Obviously, people listening to this can't see it. I mean, it is, it's majestic. It's, it's so thick it? and lush. Oh dear, it's just a beard. It's, just... <laughs> it's really well groomed. <laughs> I can, I can, I can see that you've still got that those boyish looks. Um, Baldy, not not you, Mecca, but oh. you know, I don't know. I don't know. You you, you might struggle to grow a moustache, let alone a beard. But listen, it is what it is. You know what? That's what it is. I can't grow facial hair at all. I can like see it. that. I can see that. <laughs> so I'm always in awe of men who can. Baldy, can you not grow any any stubble? You know what? It's just patchy. It just looks a bit trampy. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't yeah. get that sort of thick, lush topiary that uh, that Jake's got. Oh, never mind. Well, yeah, anyway. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It started off with a bit chat. Jason, we usually start with people's first impressions of Forest when they first come to the club. So you were sound uh, you were signed from South End in 1994. Had the club been talking to you for a while before they signed you? Um well, I came in, uh, I arrived in March, so it would have been around deadline time, um, just to close the season off. And the, the, the kind of story was really, I had um, three moves basically in the end. Well, I played for three clubs in the season. So I started off at Lincoln City and then went to Southend. Um, first game of the season was against Forest, which I missed. I was suspended, having been sent off previously. Um, that wasn't for an elbow, was it? I don't know about that, <laughs> for something. So I've been sent off. So I missed the first game of the season. That was a big game. That was televised South End um, against Forest. Stan missed the game. You know, strangely enough, Stan missed that game. Um, I was unable to play. Stan didn't play. But, you know, throughout the season, obviously, Forest was one of the favourite sides to, to bounce back up and go straight up. And, and they started the season quite, I don't know, quite slow, really. Found it quite difficult to adjust. Um, and hit a, a sticky patch, I would imagine, when Stan was out of the team. You know, he, he, he picked up some injuries. Um, and then we probably got to the new year where, yeah, there were some rumours that um, they needed somebody to come in and, and, and maybe fill the boots when, when Stan was out injured. So it happened quite quickly, I would say, from end of January onwards. Forrest, Alan Hill came to watch a few games, um, obviously performed well enough. They knew of me when I was at Lincoln. Frank Clark knew of me. That was the history, really, because he was a managing director at Leighton Orient. Um, so, obviously, I was playing for Charlton at the time, you know, youth team, reserves. Um, and obviously, you knew Kevin Campbell and Bart Williams. And, and so, you get a feel of, of kind of the recruitment process. Um, so, yeah, Frank identified that I'd be able to come in and, and probably give the team a little bit of impetus. Uh, Robert Rosario was still there at the time. I think he was injured and struggling. And if anything, Forrest still had that tag of having diminutive strikers, you know, whether it be Gary Ball, um, you know, just just the same sort of strikers over the years, you know. So they needed a little bit more presence, a little bit more physicality to get out of. Which is that is kind still... of the Nigel Clough, Lee Glover sort of... Yeah, you know where I'm going with that. Yeah. They're great little players, technically very proficient, could hold the ball up. Yeah. Um, but I think you need to change it up, especially when you drop down out of the Premier League or First Division in those days. And to get out of the Championship now, you need to be able to kind of adjust and, and deal with all sorts throughout the season. So very physical, very demanding league. So yeah, Frank identified that he needed somebody else um, in a similar stature to stand. Funny you mentioned yeah, that. Funny you mentioned that game at South End. I remember it really clearly because it was on telly. Obviously, it was for Forest's first game out of the top flight for God knows how long. It's a one-all draw. Yeah. 
Mark Crosley gets his head caved in and has to have it bandaged up. We go a goal down. Like, I remember the commentator said, this is a, a, like, what a terrible start. But it's like, oh, everything's falling apart. It felt <laughs> yeah, so dramatic. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, I remember I was gutted I missed the game, but I knew it was, I mean, this typical Barry Fry. Didn't do, his, didn't do his homework. I got sent off at the back end of the season. And... Um, as you do, I didn't tell him. It wasn't my job to tell him that I'd be missing the first game of the new season. But I came in pre-season. I was flying, scored a hat-trick, scored some other goals. He was building me up. Oh, yeah, you know, we're playing Forrest, Jason Lee, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be brilliant. Great replacements for Stan. And then I was like, um, you realise I can't play the first game. And he was like, you are joking. Me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> T- typical Barry fire. So I missed the game. I was watching the game. As you said, it was, it was really nice weather. A lot of build-up, big game, televised game. We went 1-0 up. And you just knew then, really, yeah, it was going to be a difficult season for us because that season, especially for South End, we beat every team that was fancied. You know, whether it be Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Wolves. It was third in the, in the league at one spell, going into Christmas. And, um, you know, the team had to kind of be disbanded both while left. And we had some really good players, whether it be Brett Angel, Ricky Otto, Chris Powell, Tommy Mooney. I could go through a list, really good, good players that um, went on to have really good careers. So when you sign for Forest and they say to you, oh, you know, Stan's injured and that's the reason we're signing you. As a player, how do you feel about that? Because obviously you want to be playing every game and you, you want the best opportunity to show your talents off. Does it feel a bit strange when a manager signs you and effectively says you're number two to this guy? I think you understand that, you know, especially... Forrest was quite um, forward-thinking. We generally played with one striker. You know, we kind of had five in midfield. Um, you know, the number 10 role wasn't something that people spoke about in those days, but whether it be Lars Bohinian or whoever it may be, we had um, midfielders in Scott Gamble. People could get forward and contribute with goals. So Stan was a bit of an enigma in that he could play that central role and score goals and, and, and create for himself. Whereas if I played it, I would play in a different way. i need other players to, you know, provide support, make runs and get the ball in the box. But it wasn't an easy role to come into. And I think you had to have a little bit of physicality to go and play as a striker, as a lonesome, you know, um, because you're going to get bashed by two centre-wives invariably. And you have to be able to cope with that and look after the ball and bring other people into the team. So when when he mentioned that I would be coming in, um, we did play together, believe it or not. You know, I filled in while Stan was out and then Stan came back. I must have played 12 to 15 games for... The remainder, it was a really compact, congested um, finish to the season. Stan came in, obviously played alongside me, um, but I still played the majority of the game. So it doesn't matter what a manager tells you. I had it in my mind that, you know what, if I'm in a team, it's going to be hard to take me out of the team. I'm going to compete. I'm not coming there to be an understudy. If you have that mentality, you know, you might as well forget up, you know, forget about it. But yeah, yeah, you understand that Stan was a phenomenal player. But in my mind, I always wanted to challenge him for that shirt. So when you first arrive at Forest, who are the people that you you make friends with first? Um, well, Maka was one of them. Believe it or not, I, I remember <laughs> the young, some of the some of the young players and really talented young crop. You know, I'll build him up later on, probably as we speak. But <laughs> there, there there was a group of young players. I, I was relatively young, you know, only a few years younger than Maka. Um, I'd I'd arrived. Uh, Des Little was at, uh, at Swansea, um, same age as myself. He was playing lower league, you know, I knew of Des. So you're looking, you're looking to change your man. You know, there's these established international players, you know, these, some of them are iconic, you know, the, you know Stuart Pearce, and you all knew about Pearce. But then there was a, a feeling that there was a new crop of young, hungry players that came in, which would have to take the club forward. You know, you, you just got over a relegation. Um, great things, memories, all that, but you needed impetus of young people, whether it be, you know, my crop of players and the younger crop in McGregor, Howe, Vance Warner, uh, Blavowick. So there was a really good crop of young players who were hungry, who wanted to come in and, and not just be making up the numbers. So, you know, there's no disrespect to anybody else that when I went into that change room, I felt that I'd played a hundred plus games already. I, I, you know, that was, that was important at a young age um, when I went to Lincoln from Charlton, which was a Premier League team, you know, that I went and got the games. I got 100 plus games playing. That's what I feel I missed, Jay. You know, like players yeah. like yourself would come yeah. in and yeah. 
and like Bart. I mean, we had Bart on the other day and talking about yeah. there's a split. It wasn't a split in the dressing room. It was great. It was a great dressing room, but. All the younger boys were all on the left-hand side as you walked in, weren't you? And then all the older boys were on the right-hand yeah, side. Yeah, so course. we had our little corner. Of course. But, um, like, Bart, Bart's my age. And I, rem- I remember looking up to him thinking, God, he's got so many games under his belt. And you came in and mm. got so many games under your belt. And I think that's something, me coming through the ranks at Forest, and then, you know, you've got Stan mm. in front of you and all that. And you're thinking, yeah, you do have that mentality. It's like, I, I mean, I've said it before, sat there watching yourself and Kevin Campbell and Stan thinking, I could do better there. I could do better there. I, I should be on there. You know, you have that mentality, don't you? You have to. You have to have that mentality. Of course you do, yeah. But um... You couldn't, no? No, no, I couldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it transpired, I couldn't, yeah. But you've got to have the... I had the right mentality, just not the ability. But, um, but yeah, I look, I just that, that was the difference for me. Looking at you boys coming in and you're like, yeah, 100 games under your belt. That must be massive walking into the room. Yeah, and... and... I kind of advocate when I speak to a lot of young players now, and obviously you speak to players, players will generally sit at a club, young players in development football, you know, up up until the age of 23 and would only have a handful of games if they're lucky. Mm. And some of them would be reluctant to go out on loan as well. So my advice is always go out on loan, go and get those games because the first thing a manager wants when he's bringing in a player is to know that he's got some experience and he can handle men's football. You know, we all know that. You feel like it feels like a failure, though, doesn't it? You're like, you know, when you're at a big club and someone says, Mm. "Go go to Carlisle for three months," you go, "What?" So you say that, and I remember having. I did that, that, by the way, initially. Yeah, I I did the same. You know, at Charlton, I made my debut um, in the first division. Probably sixteen and a half. I hadn't been in an academy as a young player up to the age of sixteen. I came in raw at the age of sixteen, but my mentality when I arrived at Charlton was. I can see the first team players over there. I want to get over there. I want yeah. to play. Whenever I did get called over to go and join in, I used to leave some on them. It was like the manager would be going, no. People would be like, Calm down. I'd be like, no. I want to play in that first team. I will be manhandling people, letting them know that I'm here because what's the point in being there? So yeah. I made my debut at a very young age with, with um, uh, I surname, Scott Minto. Me and Scott Minto. And then there was another striker called Gordon Watson who was my strike partner who had a, uh, uh, you know, a professional career, Sheffield Wednesday, this and the other. Flash. And we were good young players. Flash. Yeah, Flash Gordon. No, no, Gordon Flash, Watson. yeah. <laughs> Gordon Watson was my strike partner, you know, same age. We were smashing it in the Southeast counties. Then you had Kevin Campbell at, um, at Arsenal, killing it. Andy Cole, obviously, was my age as well. You had Alan Shearer at, at Southampton. So there was good young players in and around. So the point was, is I made my debut. And the last thing I wanted was to go back to the youth team. Yeah, I played in, in, in the cup games and I played reserve team football. And in those days, reserve team football was proper football. You know, it wasn't yeah. development football. It was against proper senior pros who wasn't playing at the weekend. It was play. a league to be won, wasn't it? It was, a proper, it was a proper introduction to men's football against senior professionals. So for me, it was like, OK, I'm not playing first team football. I am getting, uh, you know kind of exposed to senior football, but I need to go alone. So, yeah, I went out alone to Fisher Athletic and the manager at the time was Malcolm Allison. And a lot of young people wouldn't know about Malcolm Allison, but Malcolm Allison, legend in the game. You know, fedora hat, forget Pharrell Williams and this <laughs> and the other. He, he wore the fedora hat. He came down to the training ground. He said, look, I'm manager of Fisher Athletic. I'm thinking, well, what's he doing at Fisher Athletic? That's a conference team in, in, in East London. Um, but the experience was beneficial. I went there, had a month, scored goals, played against Barnet a few times, always scored against Barnet, Barry Fry. Really <laughs> enjoyed men's football. Went back, thought, okay, I'm back in the reserves again. Don't really want to be in the reserves when I loaned to Stockport. Um, so the feeling for me was that I need to play first team football. The, the quickest way to learn is to play senior football. You can do drills all day. You know, I've coached as well and I've managed. You can do drills all day, they're great. But we know that when, as you mentioned, when you get exposed to first-team football, you can just be manhandled and actually old-manned out of a game. You've got all the technique, all the skill, all the speed, but someone just grabs your shirts, you know, grabs whatever they choose to grab hold of, and they can say, look, not today, son. Yeah. So if you're not, yeah, if you're not used to that, young players, they can actually fall down very quickly before their careers actually take off. Best thing I ever did, mate, going out, just, just an experience as well, scoring... 
scoring a goal with a crowd, like a proper crowd, and like understanding that relationship from the pitch to the crowd and going, ah, this is yeah. this is the buzz. This is the thing. Three points. Three yeah. points is, is is your is your bread and butter. You know, it's what it's what matters. So, you know, there's lots of lots of players playing development football, and I understand why clubs have got so many players on their books, but back in our day. And um, probably years before, you didn't get a pro contract unless you was actually deemed as you've got a chance to play in the first team. Whereas, no disrespect to players now, there are players getting contracts who won't play first team football and probably wouldn't get a contract. They have to fulfill development games. You know, by the way, some of the bigger clubs on proper dough as well. Good, good dough. I mean, listen, I'm not jealous. You get what you get, but players are being given really good contracts on potential and not fulfilling their potential. Mm. Whereas in our day, you know, I can remember playing in the Premier League and it was broken down. You know, I had a, I had a contract, I had appearance money, goal bonus. Um, there was like league positions. There was lots of different things. So you had incentives to play. So you'd go on that field. You know you had to play at a weekend regardless. And that meant smashing through somebody on a Friday to get their shirt. So you, the hunger was a little bit different. The game was shaped differently. I can't remember who it was who told us this. Maka might remember, but it was a former roommate of yours on a previous episode. So can only be were... one roommate. So who would it have been? I can't remember now. It can only be Des Little. Have you spoken to Des? Ah, yes, yeah, that's Desley, who it was. Yeah, it was Des Little. It would be Des Little. It would be Des Little. Be Des. It was Des Little, and uh, he said there was only there was it was only Des when I roomed at um, at Forest. I, I, I shared with Stan once or twice, and and never again. And um, <laughs> but yeah, Des Des Little. It was always my roommate. So it was Des Little who told us this, that you were super clean and that you have like a little bag of cleaning Mm. products whenever you stayed in the hotel. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three letters, OCD. (laughs) Um, Listen, it's not the worst. It's not the worst condition to have, is it? Cleansiness. I was always, I don't know. I think the way I was brought up in that, I mean, I I never went on a plane. I was like Mr. T. I I, I never went out of the country. I don't don't drink the milk, man. You don't know, drink the milk. I, I, nine, <laughs> yeah, I was like 19 years of age, and I think it was the first holiday I went on with with, with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now. Um, and I was like, why am I getting on a plane? And what's this? And what's that? And, you know, I, even even takeaway meals growing up, you know, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't about that life. You know, takeaway was, I don't know who's cooking it. I'm not sure about it. <laughs> so yeah, you know, hygiene, spend, spending time in, in a hotel and away from home. I was just paranoid about a lot of things. So yeah, I did have this cleaning bag and it, it became one of the big stories in football that, you know, I'd get to the hotel. First thing I'd do, I'd, I'd clean the sink. <laughs> Mate, remember? <laughs> clean the sink, you know? <laughs> Go on, man. Remember, Go I on. used to uh, pick you up in that in my daft yellow Suzuki. I remember the looks <laughs> you, used to, you used to give me because it was a right tip. There were tapes everywhere, oh, and I was trying to play oh, you some dear. tunes. You're just looking at me, going, oh, "Dear, oh dear." What is that, this? That, that is obviously <laughs> that we was obviously two different sides of the spectrum. There, we just being a, a sloth, an absolute sloth, <laughs> a young person who just didn't care, and I was, I was, I was the other extreme, but. No, listen, I, I learned to kind of deal with that over the years. Not as bad as I, as I was, but I'm still I'm still um, a hygiene freak to be. And you can imagine during, during this pandemic, when it first started. Oh, man. I mean, oh, when it first started, the handshaking, it was probably a relief to me that I didn't have to shake people's hands because I was never keen on shaking <laughs> hands. You know, it'd be a fist bump or an elbow, even back in the day. So... Yeah, I just I just found that you know what as soon as as soon as people started saying that wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, I was thinking, listen, that that do me because I don't have to shake anybody's hands again. Excellent. And you know everybody else is cleaner as well. Yeah, you'd like to think so, right? You'd like to hope <laughs> that people have actually learned from this. And but what what happens? Do people revert to their nastiness when we come out of it? I'm hoping people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping people still. I hope they continue this and, and you know keep adhering to you know good health practices. You've been vindicated now. You know all these years, people have yes. teased you for being clean, but you've been absolutely vindicated. You were ahead of the see, curve. It could it could have been avoided. See, 
You know, you've got to know these things. Just take care of yourself, look after yourself. That's it. If everyone had followed your lead, we wouldn't have been in this position. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, there's conspiracy theories and all sorts. We're not going to get into any of that, are we? So, <laughs> no, no, no. Who knows? No. Um, we often reminisce with guests, particularly strikers, about, about their goals. And the one I really remember of yours, and I don't know if this, uh, I don't know if this tallies with, with your memory of your own goals, but Tottenham at home... And I just remember that being a really thrilling end to the match. It was that season when we just come up, where we, we were looking to finish high up in the Premier League. Obviously, we end up finishing third. And I, I remember that goal so clearly. I, I was sitting in the main stand, and it, I just my memory of it is that the ball is really hard to get under control. It's messy. The keeper's coming out. I think there's a couple of defenders around you or something. You managed to get it in. And in a way, that felt like a typical Jason Lee goal. A lot of your goals were in the six-yard box where you needed real quality technique, where it's sort of a messy situation and you're able to finish in really difficult circumstances. And for me, that one really... I remember that. And I remember your celebration, just like the arms going everywhere. <laughs> like, it was such an amazing finish. Mm. But am you're I making right? it sound... Yes, yeah, so in your mind, that's... that's... I, I like I like the way it sounds. I wish that was the case. But what I remember, if we if we were to re, if we were to run it back a little bit, if we were to do the analysis of, of the goal, you know, Ian won wand of a left foot. Um, but as a winger, very frustrating for me because he wasn't a winger that went past people. He had zero pace, and he never got to the byline. So he would just pick pull, you know, pick passes out and put the ball in forever. He must have kicked the ball from like 60 yards from goal or something, or at least the halfway line, he's punted the ball forward, okay? And that was my endeavour in, in those days that I would chase things down and I would, you know, be an absolute menace to whoever I was playing against. He's punted the ball forward. <clears throat> and what's, what's happened is Ian Walker's come out and he's absolutely bricked it. It's me or Ian Walker, you know? I can see the white of his eyes. I know where I'm my money is. In, he's chasing out. Exactly. So he's chasing out. I'm chasing in. The defenders have got caught on the hop. Colin Caldwell was playing that day, I remember. So I've gotten behind him. And I've managed to head the ball above. I mean, come on, you shouldn't be able to jump over a goalkeeper. But I've jumped over him, headed the ball over him. He's collapsed, you know, or got out of the way as soon as possible. Then the ball's <laughs> bounced. And that's where I've had the problem because, I've, you know, to get onto your own flick on is difficult in itself. So I've headed the ball, it's bounced and it's bounced and the defenders are now coming in. And you just want the ball to be there so you can just put it in the net. And it was taking forever for the ball to get under control, as you say, <laughs> to be... And I've managed to just probably just throw my leg at it and get it into a goal from, like, I don't know, three or four year, yards out. But in my mind, it was absolute carnage and chaos. Like, they all go and challenge, go and challenge. People are coming. I just need to... I'm waiting for a goal. Come on, just score. And I managed to put the ball in the net. So you made it sound a lot more uh, glamorous than it actually was. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I just think a lot of the, that one was amazing. And I just remember the place going ballistic. I remember the goal against Wimbledon at home, mm. again, like a crowded penalty box, really difficult to, to get a ball through mm. a jumble of legs. Leicester away. Mm. You seemed to do really well. in. you were able to score goals in really tricky situations. I don't know if that was... I don't know if I'm right or whether you'd just say you're just no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, when I first, so yeah, when I arrived and Forest was obviously in the second division, you know, now first division championship, whatever. I played some games, and then obviously the following season, Stan predominantly played the games. No one else was getting a look in. Yeah, as I said, we played with one striker, and we played with five midfielders. So that was really frustrating for me. I was like chomping at the bit. I was having to play in the reserves with Maka. It was like doing my head. <laughs> oh, no. It was doing my head in. Like, you know, like, no. So the point hey, was hey, that... I could beat a man and put a ball in. No, you could ball. No, and to be fair, we used to play in the reserves. And as I said, I knew there was a good crop of young players. But if I, if I rewind it and tell you what I was saying, I arrived at Forest and I didn't arrive in my mindset to just not play first team football. I wanted yeah. to play having been playing first team football for the last three, four years. So that was my mindset. I was really desperate to be in that team. And I was always in the squad. I was always on the bench. And, I, and in the first thing, I got labelled like a, a super sub. And that's the last thing you want as any player as a striker yeah. or whatever, to be labelled a super sub. But, I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't mope about it. I was like, I'm going to do... So every time I came off the bench, I was impactful, you know, created or scored or whatever, just made it difficult. And I went through probably a week or two weeks where I managed to score a few goals, you know, Leicester, uh, Newcastle, which we Newcastle lost. Away, yeah. And and the Tottenham game. So it was a good, you know, it was a good period for me to actually get 
on the pitch, score some goals, and then obviously show the manager, remind people that I can actually do more than just sit on the bench week in, week out. So, yeah, you know, the goals that came, some of them might have looked a little bit simplistic, but people will never give you credit for, for scoring a goal. And you know, listen, the hardest thing in football is scoring, is scoring goals. So I when was... people want to, you know... Sorry, Jake. Go on. When people want to be disparaging of any, any player, especially a striker, there's a reason why people play centre-forward and they play centre-half. I've played centre-half before. If you kick the ball out of play, you actually get applauded centre-half <laughs> and head the ball, you know, kick it into the stands and out of the stadium. Yeah, well done. But as a striker, you've got to hold it up. You've got to be technically proficient. You've got to score goals. You've got to create. It's the hardest position in football. So, you know, for me, you know, the goals that I scored came from learning. And as I said, I wasn't an academy graduate. I learned really quickly being exposed to first team football, taking up good positions in on the pitch. And also I was never a selfish striker. So I would see myself as a number nine, you know, I play invariably with my back to goal and I would hope that I would have a striker alongside me who would benefit from being alongside somebody like myself. So yeah, the goals that came, they wasn't by fluke. There was hard work, a lot of work on the training ground. You see, for me, Jay, you, you were great in positions that strike, strikers like me would avoid like the plague. So I would avoid positions mm. that you would find yourself in and deliberately put yourself in. So you were yeah. so effective like that. And I think that's something that people never picked up on is that that graft and, and the ability in those areas, they might look clumsy, but there's an art to that. And there's a bravery to that. And it's so usable to have a centre forward that's brave enough and willing enough to go into those positions and actually be effective in those positions as well. Um, well, I worked with a lot of strikers over the years, you know, um, position specific work. And the first thing I always ask the strikers, because you always have a perception in your mind how you want to play the game. Yeah. You know, and there was lots of big strikers who would be, as, you know, as big as myself, same physique. And me and Stan, chalk and cheese in terms of the way we played the game, by the way. Similar, similar physique, same size, but he wouldn't play the game like a number nine. He invariably, he didn't enjoy heading the ball, you know? So there's other strikers, you know, Marlon Harewood, throwing him under the bus, wouldn't want to head the ball. There's lots of big strikers <laughs> who invariably think, no, I'm going to play the game in a different way, you know? And they might be really technically, really proficient, but I think it's unavoidable when you're somebody who's of that size to not be expected to go and head the ball and flick mm -hmm. balls on and, and put yourself, like Maka said, in harm's way for somebody else to benefit from. So I learned at a very young age, and I remember a coach came to Charlton, Peter Eustace, he was in that for Wednesday back in the day. And he gave me that confidence. And one of the first said to me, because he'd worked with Mark Wiles and the other, is you've got a chance in the game if you actually play your size and, and play to your strengths. People always work on their weaknesses, this and the other, but play to your strengths. You know what you're about. So the point I was making, when I speak to strikers, work with strikers, they have a perception in their head how they want him. I can quickly identify. That sounds great, but I think this is where you're going to be, you know, your strengths are going to be. So someone like Maka, we knew Maka was very quick. You'd have to kind of put the ball into space, you know, give him a chance to run onto things, or you can give him the ball in wide areas and let him run with the ball. I'm not going to ask him to go and stand a, 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 against two lumps who said, oh, I was want to kick through him and jump over him. You, you just have to know people. But some players, they are kind of deluded at times. They have to learn the hard way that it's not about what you want to do as a player. You have to kind of conform to what's expected of you sometimes and go and adopt that and learn from that. And what about Macca as a musician, Jason? Did you go to any... <laughs> Behave yourself. Well, well, I knew we were going to get to that. We talk about these gigs. I knew we were going to get to that. But I'm trying to piece together who was at these gigs. Better musician than footballer. Let's oh, be perfectly cool. honest. It is what it is. <laughs> no, I'm not listen, sure that's I, a compliment I, or not. Hey, I'll take I, that. I, I went, to, I'll take I went that. to Rock City back in the day. I mean, I got I got sucked in, man. He, I don't know how he, you know, being a good teammate and all that, trying to support him. It was like, I yeah, appreciate I'm doing, it. To I'm doing day. a gig at Rock City. Bearing in mind, Mac, if you remember when I arrived at Forest, uh, my London mentality, it was all about jungleism for me. Yeah, Jungle yeah. music, drum and bass. It's evolved, doesn't it, over the years, but. Yeah. It took probably two years to arrive in Nottingham from London, but I was in London, I was in Nottingham, <laughs> still like with this jungle mania. And then I got Maka and you got um, Stuart Pierce. I'm listening to this alternative music, and obviously I'm thinking I'm not sure about this music, Maka. <laughs> you know, I, 
you know, I'm, I'm listening and all that, and I, and I support you, but I'm not sure. So we went to, we went to the gig, uh, Rock City. I remember, I think Scott Gemmell picked me up, and we've gone there, and I'm in this room, and it's carnage. You know, I'm, stick, <laughs> I'm sticking to the floor, and my feet are sticking to the carpet. The people are jumping all over the place, and I'm thinking, what is this? And in those days, <laughs> I, and you know, we we all had we all had um, our, our own kind of looks, and I had the dreadlocks in those days, and. You know, I was, I was thinking, well, man, with dreadlocks don't kind of fit into this scenario. But here I am. You know, I was trying to shake my head about listening to Mac and came one, a, a few, a few teens screamed, and I thought, okay, <laughs> this is what it's all about. And, That's why he's over there. Yeah, and, and off he went. So no, I do remember, and, and no fair play to you. Anybody who's oh, got a passion man. outside of football needs to have a passion outside of football. You know, I know Liam McKenzie really well, who. who always wanted to box and, and Curtis Woodhouse and there's been other players and other people. And I think it's important also to have a passion other than football. Too many footballers yeah. focus cleanly on just playing the game and they, they don't have anything to take their, you know, concentration away from it. And that's not beneficial, you know, mental health and this and the other. You need to have outside interest. So I was no looking, Jay, to... I, think, I think particularly the position you're, you're in now um, in terms of work, um, you... <clears throat> There are people that are football people, and you, I look at I look at lads now, players, and, and just think, God, he's a football person. If if he comes out of the game now, like w- w- he's not prepared for anything, he's not set up for anything, mm-hmm. or if he can't, and I see, I, I know players that just like that flounder coming away from the game just because they that's all they yeah. know, that's all they've got. And I was lucky because you follow your passion, right? The fact that I had a couple of passions mm. was. Was genuinely, I feel, I feel lucky to have had that. I, I feel as accomplished doing music as I do playing football and all that kind of stuff. It, it mm. fulfilled me in, in the same way. But if you've got a passion and you've got to find, reinvent yourself, that can take five, six, ten years for players, can't it? And you, it can yeah, really mess yeah. players up. Yeah, we, listen, I, obviously I work with the PFA and, and yeah. the job is to support current and former players. And invariably, my phone will ring on a daily basis. Um, and it's where players struggle to transition, mm. you know? If someone was to say to me when I first started, um, you would get 21 years out of the game. I mean, of course, I would snap their hands off. And I had 21 years. But when I'm speaking to players, they say on average, it's an eight-year eight year playing career for, for a young player to come in. Players leave the game at whatever age and they're invariably they're not prepared. So... That's really frustrating when you hear that, that they're not thinking about transitioning away from the game, thinking about what they can do to kind of counteract. You, you shouldn't just fall off a cliff, you know, emotionally. The football stopped. You know, what am I going to do next? For me, my, I mean, I had children at a very young age, so I never played golf. You know, I used to socialise this and the other, but invariably I went home and spent time with my children. Whenever I returned home, like, the kids were straight on me. The missus was never that really involved in football. It was a reality check, always. Don't get above yourself. Now look after yeah. the kids, now help. Do you know what I mean? Get, you know, yeah. get your head life. around it that way. Yeah. yeah, life, real life. Whereas, you know, some players, they, they don't understand all that and they're very self-driven, you know, very selfish. Um, and then they don't, you know, they can't cope with what they have to deal with in terms of looking after themselves, which they need to pick up those life skills. When you think people, players go in from the age of 16 and they come into this bubble and everything's pretty much handed on a plate. You know, we'll take care of you, we'll look after you, you know, we'll tell you where to be, what to do. So you stop even thinking for yourself. So my advice is always very, very to the point. I use case studies. I show players situations of really high profile players that have not coped with coming away from the game and have not prepared themselves for what comes next. So if it can happen to them, it can happen to you. We can only be honest, you know, Mako, you, you, you've, you've mentioned it yourself. It's good that we've been through the game, we can kind of relate, we can give people our experiences, whether they take it on board is up to them, but there's no excuse now, I, I believe, for a young player, he shouldn't leave the game saying there was nothing in place, I didn't know who to speak to, there's more in place now than ever before. So, do you think, Jay, sorry, those, sorry Matt, very quickly, do you think, Jade, because um, this intrigues me this, do you think, to some degree, do you know, to get to the top of the game, that the mentality of someone like Ronaldo, and, and everybody wants to be like Ronaldo and Messi, do you think that mentality has to be so single-minded that, and I know you're going to say no to this because of your position, of course, but do you think there's something in the fact that players are thinking, well, I don't want anything in the way of my mind. I don't want anything. I don't want to be coming home and studying. I want to be 
full on football brain all the time. I want to be in that mentality permanently. Anything, I don't want anything to take away from the game. Do you, th- do you think that the game's changed enough now? The players' mentality has changed enough now that they are starting to back themselves a little bit more and looking at other ventures and building something on the side. Well, we, we call it a dual career. And, you know, it took me, I got to the age of 30 before I started to really look at education. Um, and that was because I had a serious injury. It shouldn't take that. It shouldn't have taken a serious injury, career-threatening injury for me to say, you know what, I'm going to go back to college. I'm going to go to university, going to start applying myself and start building Why did it take so long? Because like a lot of footballers, um, I was earning a good wage. I was comfortable. Um, I I didn't really see, I was 30 years of age. I thought, well, I'll play for another five years at least. There's that that golden age. I hope you're going to get to 35 years of age. But as I said, I got the the career-threatening injury right to the patella tendon. And I'll never forget the surgeon telling me I was in London Hospital, Played at Loftus Road that day, and he said to me, "I hope you've got good insurance." And I was like, "That's not really good bed- bedside manner, is it? What, what do you mean?" He said, "Seriously, that's the way he spoke to me. I couldn't wow. believe it. I was fuming." And he said, so "Disrespectful, um, you know? Yeah, you, you, you struggled to play again. You realise that? I mean, my knee was split in half, so it was terrible. Ronaldo, Ronaldo, uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo had the same injury twice, ruptured patella tendon." And um, I thought, wow, that's one way of me to start thinking about what I'm going to do next. And it did refocus me. But mm. as I said, I, I hope it, you know, young players don't have to go through that before they realise. And going back to what you were saying, Macri, in terms of the Ronaldos and Messi, these players are very few and far between. Yeah. You know, these, these are unbelievable, the best players that have ever played the game. Everybody else has to work at it. And when people yeah. say the, the Ronaldo-Messi argument, I always go for Ronaldo. Reason being, I love Messi, but Ronaldo's work ethic, his work ethic, he built that that frame, that body. Yeah. You know, he will play to his 40, like Zlatan will. I played to I was 41. There's a reason why you're able to play for as long as you play. You know, I had that injury, but I still played for another 11 years. I played in league to I was 38. I overcame that injury, but... Being a professional for me was being a consummate professional. I, I was teetotal. These are little sacrifices, little things. If you're serious about it, then let's get serious about it. You know, yeah. live the life, you know, diet properly, you know, the late nights, this, that and the other, the alcohol. These are, these are the sacrifices you have to make. But then there are other players who will try and cut corners and do all those things and still expect to be the best player. Come on. I wasn't yeah. the best player, but there's a reason why I, I outlasted some really, really technical players because they didn't live the life. It's really good to hear you talk about that that level of sacrifice, Jason, because I'm not able to drink at the moment because I've been diagnosed with gout and not being able to drink alcohol has come as like quite a, a big deal for right. me. But you obviously went years without it and I presume, you know, now can enjoy a beer. Yeah, yeah. I drink now. I when I finished, I kind of tried to re- retrace my youth, to be honest, and I went for a Spurs <laughs> where I mean, it's I'm still fit. I still train. I'm going to go for a run later on today when I get a break in the day. Um, I'll drink, but I'm, I'm not crazy about drink. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a socialising thing, if anything. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I just realised when I was playing, I could make that sacrifice, honestly. I hated the idea of and I used to see it, especially at Forest. There was a drinking culture at Forest. Massive, yeah. There was still that hangover. There was, there was still that hangover of, of players rolling in on a Monday and, and, and being terrible, you know, Monday, Tuesday. And then before, you know, they're kind of regaining their senses before, you know, by the back end of the week. But for me, no, Monday, listen, you know, I'm ready to work. I'm ready to work hard. I just didn't understand it. But that, that was football in those days. There was a, a real drinking culture. And I can't imagine that would have gave you a long-term... Um, I don't think long players play long term, you know, with a drinking culture behind them. I just don't think your body can can recover and, and recuperate. Uh, earlier in the show, you said that you'd roomed with Stan a couple of times, but never again. <laughs> what was he like as a roommate? Wow, um, Stan the man. I mean, from what I remember, he's I don't know. He, he was very restless. He wouldn't he wouldn't keep still, you know. Listen, it's well documented. Stan has been fighting his own demons for many, many years, but we wasn't to know that. In you know, as young people, you just don't relate. I had no correlation or understanding of of young people going through whatever 
I just thought at the end of the day, you know, we're in a privileged position. Life's great. You know, that's that's how you feel. I've learned over the years that there's a lot more to it, you know, mental health and just having a better understanding, especially this industry that we're in. But um, yeah, Stan was Stan was un unpredictable. Let's be perfectly honest, he was unpredictable. Sometimes he was missing from training and this, that and the other. And, you know, Stan was going through what he was going through, but I didn't have an understanding of that. I, or more to the point, I didn't, identify I didn't identify with that you know same age um coming from where I came from for me football and anything that anything wanted to throw at me outside of football wasn't really gonna make a dent but I I, I, I certainly understand that you can't treat people by your own standards you have to have a little bit of understanding that people do you know they respond to things in a different way it's just a good point you make about age because it's only been fairly recently where you meet members of the current squad. And as a kid, obviously, footballers to me were like giants and they were gods. They were fully grown men. And now you meet footballers, you're like, oh, my God, they're really young. They're, they're fresh out of school. It's so weird that as a society, the moment you put on a football kit and you go onto a pitch, you get treated as if, basically, you have no problems, you're not allowed to have problems, and you are a fully responsible, fully formed adult. And that's just yeah. not the way it is. It must be mad for... I mean, every guest we have on the show, I think it's mad. But for you two, you were playing for Forest at such a young age. You played in the Premier League and in Europe at such a young age. I mean, that yeah. must just be bonkers for you to go through that in your 20s. Um, listen, I think you enjoy it. You enjoy the ride. I think it helped, as I said, that I was relatively experienced when I arrived at Forest. That, that was a difference. I was able to handle you know, dealing with adversity and this, and I had to, you know that, you know, if we talk about Badil and Skinner and this and the other, um, I had to have, you know, be able to deal with ups and downs. I think to survive in the game, they talk about resilience. Um, you know, there's lots of players, lots of athletes, lots of people that suffer with anxiety. It's overcoming those, you know, being able to get through that. You've got people at clubs who are there to support people. There wasn't in our day. You just had to just, you know, it's fight or flight. But, um, yeah, I just think we was prepared for it. You know, it was a good club as well. You know, before I came in, I know about Brian Clough and I knew the stories. And I think he always kept kept players, kept their feet on the ground. And and I think players, they had long careers because of that. You know, it's a bit, little bit like Alec Ferguson did with, you know, Beckham and all the rest gigs and that at Man United. I think these father figures, these these old school managers had a way of ensuring that young players coped in the right way. It was a nurture now, element, maybe isn't a lot there? of young players. Yeah, I think a lot of young players might struggle now to have that that father figure, and also they might not respond to it in the same way. I didn't want to ask about Badil and Skinner because it just must have. I can't imagine what it was like for you to go through that because it was such a big show and it was so ubiquitous, and yeah, people must still ask you about mm. it today. And I just imagined you've been sick of talking about it so I didn't want to really touch on it but well no listen I, I mentioned it first so there you go <laughs> I mean there, there was a poem in the week I was contacted by somebody and um national poem he, he won he won the award and he, he mentions me references me and and my situation you know going what I went through in those times and he talks about his own experiences off the back of that so when you listen to people and and how it affected so many people, um, and especially where we are now and what I do around equality and, and, and dealing with discrimination. Um, I can't get away from that subject. At the end of the day, I handled it the best way I could. You know, I was 23 years of age at the time. Um, I was playing football. I just wanted to be judged on playing football, not my appearance. Um, and it was never going to define me. And it wasn't something that I felt that, was going to ruin me. But I think other people always perceived that, oh, you know, you, it kind of ruined... Well, it didn't ruin me. I, I was out of the team because of lack of form. Um, and nobody knew how to kind of deal with that situation in those days. You know, I've always had a sense of humour. I used to watch it with my roommate, Desley, on a Friday evening. So imagine it, it was only probably five channels or this and the other back in the day. Uh, Sky was just coming in. You would watch those channels. So Friday evening, I would watch that. And then Saturday, I would have to go out and play. Do you see what I'm saying? So you have to deal with that. At the end of the day, people are laughing. It's a joke, blah, blah, blah. My mentality was always, let me kind of shut them up. Let me just score a goal. Let me do what I can. I will still be around in 10 years' time. That was always my mentality, you know? But it was difficult for family and friends and for other people that were being discriminated against for whatever it may be. 
So I've learned over the years to talk about the subject, to kind of raise, you know, highlight around the, uh, mental health and the fact that not everybody's got those same coping mechanisms. And I fully understand that, you know, the way I dealt with it, I shouldn't assume that somebody else could cope with it in the same way. How did it feel with the lads, Jay? Because I, rem- I can remember, uh, I thought about this quite a lot, about a year ago, actually, because somebody said to me, this, this is mental. I mean, this, this shows half the problem. But someone said to me about a year ago, about the blacking up. And I went, yay, blacked up. I did, I forgot, I'd completely forgotten. And I was yeah. like, oh my, it's not just like the mocking of that. I was like, oh my God, that's horrendous. Yeah. And then, and then different era. Oh, I'm mental. Different and then era. I, I remember looking, I remember, I remember it first happening. We were away somewhere. And I can remember, my question to you is really, um, how did it feel with the lads in the room? Because in, in the dressing room, because I can remember being away and I remember it coming on and them doing what they did. And then all the doors flying open in the corridor and everyone piling into the corridor laughing and, ah, and you didn't come out the room. I remember you not I don't coming remember. out the room. Yeah, I, rem- I remember yeah, that quite I vividly. Remember. I mean, I look- I'd like to think I was okay because I don't remember during that period. I never, I don't ever remember thinking, oh, I'm struggling here and I can't cope with it. Yeah, I thought yeah. I was dealing with it okay. I, I thought I had a sense of humour. Um, the only way to come through it was to obviously kind of ride the storm. Um, but yeah, you talk about blacking up, that couldn't happen now. A lot of people was upset for me and that's what you have to deal with. So before then and after, it's always going to be something, you know, mm-hmm. colour my skin. There was always a reason why fans would always get on your back. So you don't want to give them, you know, the upmanship. You don't want to give in and show them that, you're, you know, you're struggling to deal with it. So for me, it was always, I will fight that, I will fight that. But for family and friends, it was always difficult. You know, if they came to a game, whether it be the hairstyle or the colour of your skin, the amount of racial abuse I've received throughout my career, you're going to have family members who are going to want to jump to your defence. And you think, yeah. you don't want to be playing the game thinking about how other, other people are coping with it. That's the worst feeling in the world, thinking, well, I don't want you to come to this game today. I used to have to have those conversations, you know, to my wife or whoever. Don't come to this game today. You know, just leave it alone. Maybe come to home games. Don't go to away games. You shouldn't be having those conversations, right? No. But those are the things that you have to do. You have to protect, to protect yourself. You want to protect others. So, yeah, it's just kind of getting around that and, and dealing with the fog. But I don't remember going through a time where I thought, I'm going to quit. I was never going to quit. Um, you know, it's, it's, playing football for me was the easiest thing in the world. I, I was, you know, I was dedicated. I, I lived the life. I played a game. I, I, you know, I knew I could make a living out of the game. So why would I give in just because somebody says you're not good enough? We have to deal with that from a very young age where people say, I'm better than you. I can do that. Well, actually, you can't, and you've tried. It is what it is. So you I think just the shame to kind of is, deal with it. I think the real shame is that football, for me, and for a lot of lads, you know, you grow up in a council estate, you have issues growing up, whatever it might be, you might be fine. But for me, football was an escape. It was somewhere where I could be free from everything for 90 minutes and go and express mm. myself, and nothing mattered. I could be the best of the best on that park or I could go and have a fight on that park or whatever it was, you know, it was what it was. But when you, I guess, I guess when that happens, I guess when you, when it's getting taken out onto the pitch, you lose that freedom. You like, you know, when the crowds, when the crowd, you can hear things from the crowd and all that kind of stuff. I can imagine football not being a freedom, being you getting abuse on the pitch um, for things out of your control, not not for your yeah, playing, th- no, not I'll for your playing, for how that. you look or for what for whatever yeah. stupid reason. I get but where you're coming from, but you know, I also thought, I always thought, I always thought that the safest place is in in on the pitch. I always yeah. felt worse if I was sub. You know, because you, you're kind of closer to everybody, you, you got to warm more. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just starting a game, being on the pitch is the best place you can be, and also being on the pitch gives you a chance to to do something about it. I, you know, I remember scoring a goal at Stamford Bridge, you know, and that's Badil's team, and you know, I yeah. scored the equaliser. Anybody but me could score that day, but I scored the goal, and I remember running like half half the length of the pitch to celebrate with the Forest fans, and <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. That's a great feeling. I remember scoring at Ellen Road. Um, I'd been out of the team that season. I was top goal scorer, you know, for Forest. And um, I'd been out of the team for a period of time. I got back in the team, you know, Porter Cabins, Ellen Road. Yeah. They was all waiting. They was coming in, you know, they was giving us abuse when we got off the coach, got onto I the pitch. That. They went one, they went one nil up. 
I scored a goal 1-1. I remember pulling my hair up. You know, the, you could have heard a pin drop. That's what you live for as a player, right? You, as a person, you think, give me the opportunity to shut yeah. these people up. That's what you live for. So I never, ever thought, you know what, this is it. This is the end of me. I can't cope. You know, I'm going to feel sorry for myself. I love you're, playing you're the game. You're not that the guy, reason, are you? No, the reason I played the game for so long and I even had a spell in non-league was because I was, you know, I had the ambition. I still wanted to play and compete. So it's a great game. So many other, I mean, you're one of the few players to have played for Forest County and Mansfield, as well as loads of other teams mm. as well. And you obviously do fantastic work for the PFA now. One of the things you're really good at is the is the match day hosting in the corporate areas at Forest. Now, not everyone will get the chance to see you do that. I've seen you, uh, I think the last time I saw you there, you interviewing Joe Lolly after the game. And it just struck me what an amazing pundit you would make. Is that something that you've ever thought of going into? I've had opportunities and I've done work if and when I've been given the opportunity, but I played for so long. So luckily enough, I was always working, you know, Tuesday <laughs> and Saturdays. I mean, I was, I was asked to go on Soccer AM for years and years. And I was like, well, I can't, I'm always working. So it took, it took me till I retired before I went on Soccer AM. Do you see what I'm saying? So to get an opportunity to be a pundit, you basically have to be retired or injured. <laughs> I was never retired or injured. So, I, you know, but I've always enjoyed it. I did a media degree. Um, I do a lot of media stuff now. And, yeah, listen, you enjoy talking. And it's football at the end of the day. It should come naturally. But speaking to players, I think players speaking to players should have a natural bond. And you, you kind of break through that. There's a little bit of paranoia sometimes when you're a player. Like, what's he going to ask me? Who is he? I don't <laughs> trust him. Do you know what I mean? You know, you're going to get stitched up. So invariably, if it's a player on player, you, you, kind of, you kind of break through that straight away and you usually get a good interview. So no, I enjoy doing this stuff. Well, you're so good at it. I, it, it. And you're right. I mean, it's obviously, it's why part of the reason, apart from the fact that he's a very good interviewer, is why Macca's here, is that it makes it easier to have, rather than just me being a fan, it's, it's so important to have a player there who can talk your language, who actually understands it. Because whatever fans think, we don't really understand what goes on. And you can read all the books in the world you like. You can watch every game going. None of us will ever know what... What really goes on behind the scenes? What your mentality is like? What the job of a footballer actually is? It, you know, it's it's yeah. in a way, it's a world that we only see such a small part of, and that's why it baffles me that so many fans are so opinionated. Because I think I'm a fan, and I know all that experts. I know absolute fans are all experts. I know <laughs> that I know nothing. Fan, and fans are <laughs> all experts. Fans are all experts. And also, I'm glad you mentioned it because I wouldn't have come on if it was just you. You're lucky. <laughs> you're lucky. Macca was here to help me help me get me on the show. But no, no, no. Listen, you're right. You're right. Fans, and that's the good thing about football. I, I, wherever I go, whatever I do, the missus will then invariably end up walking away. She's like, "Ah, oh, someone's talking football." It's football. We all we all think we know what's best, don't we? We all support a team and he's not very good and he's rubbish and he's great. And you just think, okay, it's a great, it's a great topic. And as I said earlier, I think you have to respect anybody um, that makes a living out of the game who's professional. The first thing I do when I, when I meet scholars at 16 is I congratulate them because yeah. to get a scholarship, you're basically a pro, you know, 16 to 18, you've got your two-year scholarship. You've come further than, you know, so many of your friends, you've had to make sacrifices already to get there. And that's just the start of the journey. To stay in the game, to be a professional, it's not as easy as people think. You know, you have to be able to perform at a high, high level and you're in a small percent of people that can actually do that. So, no, well, that's we it. Love I just think it's anyone who even plays at semi-pro level, I'm just, like, amazed by. It. And to, to ever play professional football, to play professional football in the Premier League like you guys did, I mean, for me, and Paul always thinks I'm taking the mick, it's like meeting Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Like, you're in such a... You guys in football terms basically made it to the moon. It's like, you did it. You did what so many young lads and girls dream of, and you did it. It's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, as I said, you have to give people credit. Anybody that's, that's had a career, whether it be two years, three years, whatever it may be, there's no given that you're going to come into the game and have 20 years in the game. And that's going back to what we were saying earlier when I speak to young players just to try and keep their feet on the ground. You, you may not get 25 years or 20 years in the game, 15 years. You, might, you may well not play to your 35. So you're going to have to give it your best shot, right? And you're going to have yeah. to make as much money as possible. And you don't want to leave the game thinking, oh, I wish I did more. 
that's got to be one of I, that's the, that's I think that's what people struggle with. If you've got regrets, I've got no regrets. I maximized my potential. I believe you can't leave the game thinking, oh, "I wish I did more." You know that that must be a tough feeling. And when you look back specifically on your time at Forest, how do you how do you feel about those those Forest years in your career? Enjoyed it, loved it, and that's one of the reasons I've always tried to give back to the club. You know, I went back, I coached, coaching the academy, I worked in the community, I sit on the community trust board, um, I do ambassadorial stuff for the club. I'll always support the club in the best way I can because, you know, you never know where you're going to settle. Um, I lived in Nottingham for 25 years. You know, the, the, my children grew up there. Um, it's a good city, uh, and I think you never know where you're going to end up. You know, being a London boy, I always thought I'd, I'd move back to London, but I had no wish to move back to London once I left London. Um, so good city, good club, always tried to do things the right way. They've got a good academy. They've always had a good academy. And it's good to see, you know, people like Joe Wall, who I coached, you know, um, Tyler Walker, um, Yatesy, some of the boys I worked with. You, you, you get a good feeling when you see them playing first team football. And for a club like Forest you need to have that conveyor belt of homegrown talent going into the team because that's where you get the, you know, the, the right attitudes and, and, you know, for, for other players coming in, they can actually identify with what it actually means to play for that club. And they feed off it, don't they? Yeah, of course they feed off that. I mean, you know, Ryan Yates, I mean, you've heard Joe Wall speak many times with, you know, his passion, great kid, great lad. He's endeavour, he works extremely hard. You know, he, he gets what he, he gets what he deserves. You know, he went out on loan. He didn't want to go out on loan. He went to, to Rangers, but that was great for him. He went and played, uh, you know, good football at a good level, came back and he's back in the team playing. But every manager's got their ideas about who they want to play. And sometimes it's difficult when you're a homegrown player as well. You'd have had this, Maka, yeah. that you see players from other clubs come in and get treated better because managers always will look after the players that they sign. They, they can't help but do that. Otherwise... Why would you bring a player in if you don't back him? But it's hard for, for homegrown players in that respect that sometimes fans sometimes might not appreciate them as much. Uh, contractually, they might not get the best contract because they're homegrown. And, and that can be difficult. So to stay at a club, you know, to, to do 10 years or whatever for your homegrown club, like Chrissy Cohen was brilliant for, for Forrest. That's not easy, you know, if you can do that. Um, but it's always beneficial to, as I said, when you bring players from weather they can always identify with that homegrown player. I thought that, like, with, you know, Ron Atkinson and, and Dave Bassett a little bit when they came in, um, just like, were all these years coming through from the age of nine, ten, worth nothing to this club? You know, yeah. was, was, all, was all that yeah. worth nothing? You just bought him in and him in and I'm now, I've, I got injured yeah. and what, I'm over there now, right? I'm now in the yeah. reserve dressing room. Well, cheers. Brilliant. Yeah, I remember that. And Billy, and Billy Davis, I was coaching at the time, Billy Davis, and he had no vision for the youth. Yeah. You know, as, as, as successful as he was, and I know the fans hold him in high esteem, you've got a great academy just over there, but you don't see, and some managers have to have that selfish streak. They don't see, they haven't got the time and patience to wait for a young player to come through the system and play their first team. So they will focus on bringing in the right players. And it depends but, on the time, said, doesn't it? It depends where you yeah, are in the league and what you need to do on the good. job. It's not yeah. good for the homegrown players who, as you said, who have been there maybe 10 years, come through all the age groups and have worked hard and, you, you, that's what you're sold the dream. You know, you come yeah. to an academy, there has to be a conveyor belt, an opportunity for you. Because some players won't sign for certain clubs knowing that there's no chance of playing in the first team. So you have to think about it like that, you know? I had to leave London to go and play wherever. But if I came to an academy, I would have been feeling just like you if I couldn't get into the first team. Charlton was a good club because Charlton was, you know, one of the smaller London clubs that had to rely on young players. You had to give them an opportunity to get into the first team. So, I can't think of anything worse than being at one of these bigger clubs, knowing that you're never going to play in the first team. Yeah. Jason, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for coming on. You're one We've of the gone most into extra time. We have gone into extra time. I was trying to wind it up for one o'clock. So no, I know you had a meeting. You've done so. well. You've done well. I'm, I'm going to send my apologies when I go into this next meeting. But this, this has been a lot lighter hearted than what I'm going into. Right, okay. <laughs> we really listen, appreciate, I appreciate it. it. I appreciate it. Maka, thank you. Awesome to see you again, mate. Appreciate it. Have a good day, All the Jay. best, pal. Cheers, Jason. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Top Cheers. man, Jake. Well, Jason Lee. The... 
Matt, he had another meeting afterwards. So we booked him in for an hour. We recorded this at noon. He had a meeting at one. And as the clock was ticking down, I was like, oh, man, we could easily do. If he didn't have another meeting, I'd have just let that carry on running. I well, hate... You should have told me because I was gibbering on. I, I had no idea. Well, I hate, I hate being late. I hate when people are late for me. And I hate being the reason for other people's lateness. I didn't want to, I didn't want to overrun. But it was at that point you're like, we could easily do another hour with Jason Lee. Because should the... we officially apologise now to whoever whomever it was that we were, whose time we've trespassed on. Yes, if you had a meeting at one o'clock with Jason Lee a few weeks ago. We do apologise. We do apologise for making him late. Um, this is like a letter from his mum, isn't it? Like, <laughs> it's our fault. That it Jason, wasn't his fault. It was Jason fault. was late. We just think, oh man, there's so many other things I wanted to talk to him about. And he's such a good yeah. talker. And he's a really deep thinker. And you just think, oh, there's so much more. Now we've had guests come back. Robbo came back, Reedy came back for like Christmas specials. So it'd be great to get him back. Really would, yeah. That's such a great thing. Do you know what? I mean, talker. we've got such a depth of of players to go at still. Some Man. of the bigger ones as well that, that would be fantastic. But we've still not, we've, we've only a couple of times returned to a few players. And like, I think, I think there'd be an appetite for fans to, uh, for fans of the show. Well, you know what? I don't um, want to. I don't want to float ideas that we don't then deliver on. But I was thinking about this. Like when you have someone on, it's roughly an hour, and we talk about their entire career, usually their forest element for an hour. That's a really broad subject for just one hour. So I think people will tell the stories that you know. Obviously, we might ask in specific areas, and that triggers memories. But what I was thinking about would be a really good thing to do. Would be to do. I guess other shows would call this a deep dive, but you do an episode on a specific thing. So we do an episode on the 1992 ZDS Cup final oh, on yeah. its anniversary. Now, it was, it, it was the anniversary the other week of us winning it, and we're the last holders of the full members' trophy. So we are the reigning champions. <laughs> but get on, say, Scott Gemmell and Kingsley Black, just to talk about that final. Because I think, you know, when you give someone a really specific area... Is Scotty's volley? Yeah, he scores two oh. great goals in that final. Kingsley Black, all the goals are great. All the Forest goals are great. Psycho gets injured in it, which yeah. then rules him out pretty much for most of the 92-93 season. So there's a legacy to that game. But just to get maybe one or two guests on and only talk about that one thing. Now, obviously, things would branch off that, but we could do an episode on the 1990 League Cup yeah, final. I like it. I do I feel that this is a conversation we should have had privately, though. Yes, I realise I'm springing this on you. And I, I realise that for you, dear listener, you may go, oh, this is great, do that, and then we never get around to it. Yeah. You go, you wallet. <laughs> but I was just thinking of ways of theming things, maybe, and doing them yeah. around anniversaries. We don't necessarily have to do them around anniversaries, but do them around particular bits and pieces. It's a nice idea. It's an idea. Oh, so it may idea. remain an idea, <laughs> but I think... You know what? Sod it. Let's just do that. Let's for the next one do. Oh, I'm. I'm oh no! <laughs> what if we can't? Maybe. 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 We do. Have we got someone lined up? Who we got next? Oh, don't tell. No, don't. Well, that's just it. Nod. That's, Have we got um, let's talk about this. Let's. Right. <laughs> we should both be doing this off air, off mic. We're too comfortable and we're too relaxed. We shouldn't be doing this at home. We'll because that's so relaxed. Relaxed. I'm relaxed. It feels oh, like we're together. Well, um, we shall leave you now listener thank you for downloading this we hope you've enjoyed it jason has been a superb guest we would love to get him on again in the proper future. legend all you need to do is give us a follow on social media on twitter at rrd1865 and put this on your facebook your twitter your social media say wow what a great show or put it in your own words <laughs> wow. and leave us a review wherever you listen to this on whatever platform some allow you to do it someday i know acast you can leave a star rating and on apple Podcasts you can leave a rating and review Please just take a couple of seconds to do that, as considering that payment <laughs> to the podcast community. And we'll see you next time. Yes! yes.